Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, as we open your word to study, we are aware that already we have put ourselves under your word. In what we have sung, in what we have prayed, in the ways in which we have fellowshiped and loved each other, we've done all this under the banner of your word, once spoken and still speaking. So Father God, give us ears to hear this morning. Soften our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you... Speak clearly that we might be convicted of sin, that we might be encouraged in our weakness, even that some here this morning would awaken to faith in you. Thank you for the gift of your word. Help me to present it with clarity, with accuracy, with urgency, that we would be your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35 is where we're going to be this morning. Opposition always causes disorientation. It's not uncommon. When we face opposition in some matter, it messes with us a bit. I remember a time I faced opposition and experienced disorientation, and it happened in a game called bubble soccer. A couple years ago, with some friends, we played bubble soccer. Here's how you play bubble soccer. This company has these giant inflated globes with a hole in the center, and you slip your body inside this globe. And it's big enough that it goes over the top of your head, and it goes down to about your waist, maybe a little lower, and you're inside this globe, arms up like this, and you're going to play soccer. But soccer isn't really the goal. It's lighting people up that is the goal, because when you hit each other with these giant inflatable balls around you when you run into each other you just you bounce so you bounce off of whoever you hit and then you land on the ground and you bounce some more and everyone laughs and has a good times and breaks their legs and goes on about their day it's tons and tons of fun so the way the game starts they put the soccer ball in the middle of the field and one line of people inside their bubbles are over here and the other side is over here Ref blows the whistle, and you run towards the center at full speed. And so, I don't know if you know this, I'm an alpha male, an apex predator. So I eyeballed the biggest guy on the other team. His name's Logan. And I thought, I'm going to eat his lunch. I'm going to set the tone as soon as that whistle blows. I'm going to hit that guy, well, I was going to say in the face, but he's got this giant ball around him, and i got a giant ball around me. I'm just going to hit him hard, and we're going to see what happens. Uh, the problem is this, Logan's a former offensive lineman, and he's one of those guys who's so big that he looks like his shoulders are swallowing his head. He's built like that. And so he's squeezed inside his bubble ball, right? Ref blows the whistle, and I'm like, it's on. I'm doing this. So I'm running full speed, which is full speed for me is like Stay puff Marshmallow Man type of velocity, wobbling, same kind of gait, wobbling down the field. And I got Logan, and guess what? Logan's got me. He knows what's up. We're running at each other. And at the last moment, Logan gets low, and then he launches upward, and then I launched. And I saw two things. One, as I flew through the clouds, I saw the curvature of the earth. 
It was beautiful. They should have sent a poet. It was amazing. Then as gravity brought me back down to earth, uh, I saw an old medicine man standing in the woods with an extra horse beckoning me to come to him. (laughs) I considered it. And I was messed up for the rest of the match. I was a timid little flower, and any time Logan came near me, I screamed like a baby and ran away and just looked for someone much, much smaller than me. Man, opposition causes disorientation. It's true in bubble soccer. It's true in the Christian life. Christians all the time face opposition. When we do, and when we're not prepared for it, it can really throw us off. It can do a lot more than just throw us off. It can do some real serious damage to the way we think about our faith, the way we think about Christ, the the way we think about our place in this world, the way we think about um, the truths that we have rooted our lives in. This type of disorientation uh, can be a major problem for Christians who aren't ready for it. But I tell you this, one of the primary reasons we wouldn't be ready for opposition would be if we're not spending enough time with Jesus. Because what we've seen in our study of Mark so far is that every place Jesus goes, he faces opposition. From chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 6, we have five episodes in a row, just machine gunned, one right after the other, where Jesus faces opposition. And at the end of all five of those scenes, Jesus has a perfect record. He's 5-0. and oh. He takes on the opposition. He stares it down. He confronts it. He rises above it. So throughout our study of Mark so far, Jesus is not getting parades everywhere he goes. He's getting opposition. And we're going to see more of that this morning in the passage that we study. If Jesus faces opposition, you've got to be ready for it yourself. Remember that you follow a Savior who was crucified by this world. Not celebrated, not honored, but utterly humiliated. And if that's the way the world treated him, do you want to guess how the world's going to treat his followers? You and I face opposition of many kinds from many different sources. And my goal today in preaching this passage is to fortify you against the inevitable opposition you're going to face as a follower of Jesus. And I want to do that by highlighting two sources of opposition. Same two sources Jesus faced are sources that we face. And so the outcome of our time this morning should be some stronger legs, some more intense resolve, and a way through opposition wherever it comes from. I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 3. I'll start in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. 
And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. There are two groups in this passage who oppose Jesus. And you can expect the same in your walk with Christ today. So let me highlight for you these two sources of opposition. The first source of opposition for the follower of Jesus is going to be opposition from people who insult your Savior. Opposition from people who insult your Savior, verses 22 through 30. Mark's a master storyteller, as we've seen already, and he choreographs this scene, I think, kind of like a movie maker would. So we're given Jesus in the disciples' setting. They're in a house. We know that Jesus is still in the region of the Sea of Galilee. He hasn't left that area. And there's one house that Jesus has frequented so far in the Gospel of Mark. That's Peter's house. So it might be our best guess to say, well, Jesus is back at Peter's house, the same place where in chapter 1, Jesus healed uh, Peter's mother who was sick, and then the same place in chapter 2 where some men unroofed the roof of the house and lowered their paralyzed friend through so that he could be healed. Jesus seems to be back in this house, and they're eating food, and there's a big crowd that's gathered. And then the camera shot goes to Nazareth, which is not exactly next door, And there, a messenger arrives to Jesus' mother and his brothers and says, you need to come do something. He's out of his mind. He's squaring off against the scribes. And all these things he's saying, just it's bothering people. You need to come do something. So maybe the scene shows them packing up their goods, getting ready to take off. And then the camera cuts back to the house in Capernaum. And about this time, a delegation of teachers of the law, that's what uh, this translation calls them. Your Bible might say scribes. This delegation of scribes arrives in Capernaum from Jerusalem. So who are these scribes? Uh, we've seen them before in Mark's gospel. They are, they're like religious lawyers. They're experts in the Hebrew scriptures and experts in the interpretation of those scriptures and the oral traditions that accompany them. So these are the guys, the religious police, so to speak, uh, who would say, you are doing it right or you are doing it wrong. You are in and you are out. This delegation arrives from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, not exactly next door to Capernaum. About 85 miles, that's how far it is from Jerusalem to Capernaum. These guys are sent from the mothership, from the temple authorities, to go all the way to Capernaum 
to confront Jesus to try to put down this little brouhaha that he's causing around Galilee. And what's the accusation they bring with them? Can you imagine these guys all dressed up in their official garb? They, they do not fit in in a tiny fishing village. They're obviously city guys, professional guys. And they walk in in all of their religious pompousness and all of their official dress. And their accusation is this. He is possessed by Beelzebub. That's another name for Satan, not a common one used in Scripture. He's possessed by Beelzebub. The way he casts out demons is by the prince of demons himself. And they pat themselves on the back and good job and huzzah, huzzah. They think they've, they've done the good work. They've brought all their authority to bear in this moment. But Jesus, ever the verbal ninja, retorts. He speaks to them in parables. He responds in two different ways, refutes their accusations in two ways. First, in verses 23 through 26, Jesus makes the point that if it's by the power of Satan that Jesus is kicking demon tail, then Satan is an enemy against himself. This just doesn't make any sense. A kingdom divided against itself is going to fall. A house divided against itself is going to fall. That's the way it would be for Satan as well. If it's by the power of Satan that I am casting out Satan, then Satan has already met his end. So Jesus points out this lame logic in their accusation. Second refutation of Jesus in verse 27 is a brilliant little parable that shows that Jesus has actually bound Satan in order to rescue people. Look at verse 27 in your Bible with me. Jesus says, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. So we've got to do a little work in this parable and identify our cast of characters. In this little parable in verse 27, we have a strong man. Who's the strong man in this parable? I see Jesus referencing Satan. Satan is the strong man. Who's the thief? Jesus is the thief. And what is he robbing the strong man of? He's robbing him of souls. He is taking back property that rightly belongs to Jesus. How unbelievable is it that of all the things Jesus could have used to describe himself, he uses thief language, describes himself as the righteous robber, right? The, the, the savior stealer. Uh, of all the things Jesus could use, he's the thief that's come in. Satan, the strong man, has been bound so Jesus can come in and take back those souls that belong to him. The point Jesus is making is this. Why would Satan bind Satan in order to take from Satan that which belongs to Satan? You traveled 85 miles for this? Having put down their argument, Jesus next turns to them specifically, his accusers. I want you to look closely at what Jesus says in verses 28 through 30. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. These verses have caused no small amount of anxiety and fear for many, many people. Uh, 
Oftentimes when we read this passage, we'll come away thinking, well, I don't know for sure what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. I worry that maybe I've committed that sin and I, I didn't realize it. So let's deal with those questions. Let's walk out of here this morning with a strong understanding of what Jesus has said. Well, what exactly is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, in the context of our story, this sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, happens when the religious leaders witness the works of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' exorcisms, but they attribute that work to Satan or to an evil spirit. In other words, they look directly at the light and they turn immediately to the darkness. This defiance on their part is not so much just a one-time occurrence. This is an ongoing defiance, an ongoing resistance to the message and person of Jesus Christ. And this resistance on their part seems to put them beyond repentance. How does forgiveness work in any situation? Forgiveness works in this way. We turn to Jesus. We repent from our sin. We turn to Jesus in faith. He forgives us our sin. Repentance is a key component in our forgiveness. And where repentance is absent, forgiveness is absent. Where a turn towards Christ is not present, forgiveness is not granted to those people. So this defiance on their part seems to indicate that they are beyond repentance. So one writer defines blasphemy against the Holy Spirit this way. He says, this sin is a defiant, willful, final rejection of the Spirit's work in a person's life. Another pastor defines it similarly. He says, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power so that we are never able to repent and be forgiven. So, can this sin be committed today? The answer is yes and no. No, it cannot be committed by those who are followers of Jesus Christ. This is not a sin that you just accidentally slip into or you commit by accident. It's not a sin that removes salvation. As if you're saved at one point, you commit this sin at another point, and then your salvation is ripped from you. That's not salvation. If, if this sin could take away your salvation, you were never saved to begin with. Nor should you fear that it's a past sin that would hinder your present salvation. If you're pursuing Christ, you're feeling pulled to Him, but you fear, what if, what if I've done this in my past? My past is full of resistance. I, and I've said some awful things about Christians and about Christ. What if that, would that keep me from getting saved today? The answer is no. The condition is repentance. And if you feel the call of God, if you're being drawn to trust in Christ for your salvation then you've committed no sin that would keep you from that salvation. So can this sin be committed today? Not by believers. It is a willful, defiant rejection of the Holy Spirit. A believer, by definition, cannot do such a thing. However, yes, this tragic sin occurs all the time in the lives of those who resist the Holy Spirit and whose lives are hardened against his call. 
This is not a sin that is just merely a one-time occurrence, but rather it's a lifetime of resistance and obstinance. And it's not for you and I to try and determine who has committed the sin and who has not. If Saul of Tarsus were put before us with his track record, we might think, here stands the blasphemer of blasphemers. But when Paul, the father of missions, stands before us, we recognize the power of Christ's ability to forgive. All sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven of them. So yes, the sad reality is that all the time we are surrounded by people who are committing this sin, who are entrenching themselves apart from the Holy Spirit's call to repentance. To think that there's a sin that God will not forgive, it rubs against our contemporary notions of who God is. But I think we should take Jesus serious at this point when he says there is indeed a sin that will never be forgiven. Those who belong to Jesus, they are his always and forever. And those who are condemned in their sin are likewise condemned always and forever. One pastor said, God's sentences are as unbreakable as his pardons. So when Jesus says, all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven, but there is one that will never be forgiven. We should not breeze past that so quickly. There should be a sense of fear at the judgment of God on our sin. There should be a sense of urgency. And we should be lifted by the promise that all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. Take that promise and let that lead you to the Savior who knows you by name, who died in your place, who knew you as a rejecter, as a sinner, as someone who didn't want anything to do with Him. And still He went to the cross in your place so that all of your sin and all of your blasphemy would be forgiven. Do not reject that call. Do not put it off. There is a day of hardening that will come when you will not respond to that voice anymore, when you will not be drawn to repentance again. If you hear his voice today, let your answer be, yes, Lord, I am yours. You are mine. I'm following you. Day of salvation is this day. This is the salvific moment. How could you put off eternity another day when Christ calls you by name to be his child? So I want you to hear the love of Christ and see the grace of Christ in his promise that all sins will be forgiven. But I want you to take serious his warning that there is one that will never be forgiven. Do not gamble with your eternity. Hear the voice of Christ today and come to him for your salvation. So what should, what should we do with Jesus' words here about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, his reaction to this opposition? I think there's a few things we can do. One, don't be surprised when opposition comes your way. If Jesus faces opposition, you're going to face it. The church will face it. Let's not expect our nation or our world to grow any friendlier towards the Christian faith. And so when... The tides begin to turn more and freedoms are taken away and the challenges become greater to be a public witness of Jesus Christ. Oh well, 
You know what that changes about our worship, our prayer, our practice, our gospel? Not one thing. You can imprison the gospel, but you can't muzzle it. You can write laws against the practice of it, but you can't shut it down. You can kill those who belong to Christ. And you're not going to stop the Word of God. So we're not going to be surprised when opposition comes. Here's another thing. Let's run from sin. Anytime we face opposition, here's a reminder that there is a sin that God will not forgive. It's an opportunity for my sanctification in the moment of opposition. To remember the words of Christ. To love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. I want to be that kind of person under opposition. I will run from sin in all of its manifestations in my life and cling to Christ. Here's another thing we ought to do. We ought to preach. We ought to preach. Opposition comes, stands against us. Brother, sister, proclaim the gospel with boldness. We often tremble when the world rejects the gospel and reacts against it. We worry when they call us bigots and homophobes or tell us that we're on the wrong side of history. What nonsense to be afraid of. The vindication of the truths of Jesus will never come from the world that hates him. Their opposition does not mean Jesus is wrong. Actually, it means Jesus is exactly right. In John chapter 15, verse 18, he begins to prepare his disciples for this. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. So, here's the headlines. The world at large hates the reality that all people are dead in sin and in need of salvation. The world at large hates the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. The world at large hates biblical descriptions of sexuality and marriage. The world at large hates the spread of the gospel. And that's the very reason we respond to this opposition by preaching the gospel. We preach, we don't judge. Jesus did not give us scales. He handed us a megaphone. He will do the judging. It is ours to do the proclaiming. We don't know on this side of eternity who is condemned by this sin and who is not, but we know that if anyone's going to be forgiven the sins and blasphemies they've committed, it's only by hearing the gospel and responding in faith to Jesus Christ. So that's why we go, and that's why we love. The strong man has this world in his clutches, but I've got news for you. That liar has been tied up. And it is time to invade enemy territory and rob him blind of the souls that belong to Jesus. Don't you fear one bit. Do not quake one bit. Jesus has got this under control. You're going to face opposition from the world. It's going to insult your Savior. So we're going to advance in the gospel. Here's a second source of opposition that every Christian is going to face and have to deal with. You're going to face opposition from people who question your allegiance. People who question your allegiance. Verse 31, Jesus' family arrives on the scene. A messenger is sent in. Verse 32, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus responds, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. 
This is a troubling scene because it seems like Jesus is disrespecting his own family. Now, for the record, um, the charge in verse 21 that Jesus is out of his mind, I'm not so sure that comes from his family. I think that comes from the messenger. And the fact that Mary is present, she's made this trip to be at Capernaum, I, I don't think she believes her son is out of his mind. I think she's a concerned mother. I think she knows full well what his mission is thanks to her heavenly visitor way back in Luke chapter 1. I don't think she's there because she thinks her son is crazy. I don't think she's trying to impede the mission that is his. But I think there's concern for sure. And so we see Jesus in this instance and we might think, well, how could he disrespect his mother this way? Shouldn't he obey the fourth commandment to honor his mother by going to her? But look, Jesus does not treat his family with disrespect here. Rather, he uses strong language to make his point. And what is his point? The radical values of the kingdom of God demand new allegiances and a new orientation in human relationships. Every one of us must respond to Jesus independent of our ethnic identity, our national identity, our religious identity, our tribal identity, or our family identity. And this has very real and very difficult implications for many of you who are following Jesus while facing opposition from family. It has not been an uncommon conversation I've had with people who are feeling drawn to faith in Christ, but wrestling with the objections of their family. That is a hard place to be in. Jesus gives you a course of action, a direction here. What do you do when your spouse or your parents or your family in general oppose your relationship with Jesus Christ? What do you do? You do the will of God. Now, that doesn't mean you hate your family. You necessarily separate from them. You cut them out of your life. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. We cannot justify unchristian behavior using the words of Christ. The reality is this. If you want to love your family best, you will do so by loving Christ supremely. Sister, if your husband does not walk with Jesus, love Jesus supremely in order to love your husband well that the promises of 1 Peter 3 would come to fruition in your life. And brother, if your wife does not walk with Jesus, then you love him supremely that she might see in you the Savior who laid down his life for the church. When we love Christ, we will love our family best. Jesus anticipated that these struggles would come, and he helps us with it. But if a choice has to be made between obeying my family's wishes or walking in the will of God, we walk in the will of God every time that's the right answer. And we still love our family and we're gracious with them and patient with them and present with them. But Jesus Christ commands our allegiance first and foremost. What's more, this teaching has implications for the church. It colors the way we relate to one another. 
not as acquaintances in the same room, but we are here together with brothers and sisters. This is family time. So I want to speak to a few groups in the church, but I need some privacy to do that in order to help apply this passage properly. So I'm going to ask for a little bit of privacy, and uh, I want to speak to the elders of our church first. So if you're not an elder, would you cover your ears, please, some earmuffs, and Give us some privacy as I speak to my brothers about what it means for us to be a family of faith. So thank you for covering your ears. Brother elders, listen closely. You are, you are the most important people in our church, and the people under your care are your family. And so we need to pray for them and care for them in a way that's befitting a family. And, and then when we meet to pray, we pray with a fervency as if we're praying for our family because we are. And when, when we meet to do business, we remember we're making decisions for our family, not employees or constituents, but our family. Brothers, we have to love our family well in the way we serve them. Okay, earmuffs off. Thank you for that moment of privacy. I want to speak to another group now. I want to speak to those who lead growth groups and Sunday school classes. If that's not you, would you put on your earmuffs, please? Because I need to talk to them in privacy for a moment. Thank you for honoring this. Growth group leaders and Sunday school teachers, listen. I'm going to tell you this and you alone. You are the most important people in our church. You are tasked with advancing the discipleship of the people under your care. And so you have to make sure that you lead them as if you are leading your family. And also, you have to create an environment in which they learn to love each other like family. And that can be a hard thing to do, but it is glorious work and it is worth the effort. So you set the pace in your group. Do all you can to intertwine these lives and set their focus on the gospel. All right, earmuffs off. One more group. I want to speak to members of our church. If you're not a member, earmuffs please. Thank you very much. Members, you're the most important people in this church. I would only tell you this. And you sat next to your brothers and sisters this morning. You, You walked into the family. Can we work harder and more intentionally to carry a family mindset into our gatherings? To be slower to get to our seats and slower to get to our cars and quicker to look people in the eye and slow down and learn names and know stories and ask, how can I pray for you this week? Because these are your brothers and sisters. This is your family. Let's love each other like family. Earmuffs off, last group. Visitors, non-members of our church, everyone else, earmuffs on. Visitors, listen, you're the most important people in this church. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we want you to see and understand the beauty of Christ and the glory of salvation, the difference he makes in the life. He takes people from all walks of life and makes them brothers and sisters. We want you to be a part of the family as well. Jesus sets the tone for how we love each other, where our allegiance lies, and how we care for each other. This is a family of faith. It's nothing less than that. So in these two opposition stories this morning, 
we've learned quite a bit. We've learned that just like Jesus, we are going to face opposition. But you don't need to fear. Jesus is stronger than our great enemy. And Jesus shows us how to love our family best. It's natural that we would fear opposition because we don't want the gospel to be muzzled. But the gospel of Christ is far more robust than you might imagine. In the year 634 A.D., A Muslim army descends on the then-Christian city of Damascus and wipes it out. In taking the city, they destroy a cathedral that had been built in honor of John the Baptist. And on the place where that cathedral stood, they built a mosque. In order to cut costs, they repurposed some of the stones from the cathedral in building the mosque. That mosque was finished in 715 A.D. It still stands in Damascus today. We know it in English as the Great Mosque. It's one of the holiest sites in all of Islam. As worshipers exit the mosque on any given day, they're going to walk past a wall to their south, which has an inscription on it, and that inscription is in Greek. Greek is not the language of Islam. Arabic is. So why is there a Greek inscription in this mosque? It's because some of the stones they chose to repurpose had Scripture engraved on them. And every day, as worshipers of Islam walk out of that mosque, they walk past an inscription. It's a revision of Psalm 145, verse 13, and it says this, Your kingdom, O Christ, there's the revision, your kingdom, O O Christ is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Every day for the past 1,300 years, worshipers of a false god have walked by a small piece of scripture that attests to the enduring kingdom of Christ. Don't you worry about the gospel. Don't you worry about the church. Don't you worry about our Savior. Don't you worry about yourself. The kingdom of God endures and so do his people. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for pictures like this where we see the opposition that our Savior faced. Jesus, thank you not just for setting the example for us to follow, but for giving us the direction to walk as we face opposition ourselves. Holy Spirit, give us courage and boldness as we face down the schemes of the enemy and remind us that he is a bound enemy. Strengthen us that we would stand in the face of opposition. Strengthen us that we would identify our allegiances first by our trust in you. Strengthen us that we would love each other as a family of faith. That the world would see and hear the glorious gospel that saves everyone who turns in faith. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.